Is this a spiritual podcast? <laughs> sure is. You're listening to Wild and Holy Radio, the realest conversation on spirituality, finding your truth, and creating a life that honors your soul. I'm your host, Megan Hale, and together we'll grow in more faith, more love, and doing our holy work in the world. We've always been holy, and we were born to be wild. Permission to be both is granted. This episode is brought to you by Wild and Holy Year, a year-long spiritual container for coaches, therapists, helpers, and healers ready to have their own breakthroughs so they can show up braver and help others have their own. I know you're here to do hard things, to show up before you're ready, and start making your unique difference in the world. I know you're here to step into the arena, the woman you're here to become, while leaning into courage, vulnerability, truth, and bravery, which is why I'd love to invite you to a year-long journey of diving deeper into your own work, while surrounded and supported by other women leaders who are doing the same. There are just six spots left to join me, and we're getting started in March. You can find out more about the two unique ways to join us at megan-hale.com slash wildholyyear. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome back to another episode on Wild and Holy Radio. I have like a permagren smacked on my face right now because I get to introduce you to somebody I just, I so adore, and she's got a new book out, and it's so good, and I can't wait for you to read it. So today, you are meeting Andrea Owen, and if you don't know her, she is definitely a woman that you want to have in your circle. Andrea is not only a mentor of mine, somebody that I just hugely admire for the way she shows up in the world and just for who she is as a woman, but she's also a really good friend. So to be able to have her on to talk about her newest book, Baby, and also hear about the behind the scenes of actually writing the books, there are so many things happening in her life during this time of really having to practice her own tools. It was just awesome to be able to share space with her and celebrate her. It's such a big deal, you guys, to birth something into the world. World. So I am so excited for you to get your hands on her newest book, which is called How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness. It is due out in January 2nd, which is next week. And she's got an amazing opportunity to dive into the book even deeper. She's doing a month-long group book study as a bonus for purchasing the book. And that's going to start January 22nd. So I want you to go check out the show notes, order your copy of the book, then go and claim your bonuses. She's going to be walking us through the book together, answering any questions and making sure you get extra support on this journey. So you can learn about the 14 habits that are making you feel like shit and how to move away from them. I mean, what an awesome book to come out at the beginning of the year, right? And there's so many good tools in here, which we're going to talk about on today's interview. So if you're new to Andrea, she is an author a mentor and certified life coach. And she's also certified in the daring way by the way. So we totally like nerd out on Brene Brown's work, which is so awesome. But she helps high achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation and choose courage and confidence instead. She's helped thousands of women at this point manage their inner critic to create loving connections and live their most kick-ass life. 
Her first book, Baby, was titled 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, BS Free Wisdom to Ignite Your Inner Badass and Live the Life You Deserve. You can get that book too. And when she's not juggling her full coaching practice or hosting retreats, Andrea is busy competing in triathlons, chasing after her 10-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter, or making out with her husband, Jason. She's also a retired roller derby player, having skated under the name Veronica Vane. Isn't that so fun? Uh, you guys, you have to go and check out more and learn about Andrea on her website, which is yourkickasslife.com, or you can go and follow her on Facebook by checking out the show notes. I am so stoked to be celebrating her and sharing her with you today and talking about her newest book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, here's Andrea. Welcome back to Wild and Holy Radio, you guys. Today is super special because I'm having a repeat guest that was on the Enoughness Revolution. She's a good friend of mine. She just came out with a new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. You are going to fall madly in love with her and all the tools that she talks about in this book. Andrea Owen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, honey, I've been looking forward to this all week. I'm so glad to be here. I love talking to you because you're one of those people who can totally jam out on all of the biggest concepts that we need to step into our fullest expression. And your book does not disappoint in that regard, like at all, like you go there and it's so good. I'm so excited to talk about all of these things. So we're going to try and get as much in as possible, but let it be known to all of you who are listening. You need to go buy the book. So thank you. I love that you're, I know people can't see you on video right now, but I can, but you, you guys, she's putting her hair in a ponytail. Like she's like ready. <laughs> yes. Let's dive in. So the place that I want to start is actually, I think one of the most vulnerable places I would imagine for you while you're writing this book. And it's in the chapter where you're talking about checking out mm-hmm. and you're talking about losing your dad in the middle of this writing process. Yeah and choosing to move towards his end of his life, to go and be with him, to move towards that pain and how Sark was saying that is big love. And Mm -hmm. that just like, it touched me because that is some of the hardest stuff we ever have to do. And I would love for you to talk about how that changed your definition of what big love really is. Yeah. And to clarify, it was actually Martha Jo Adkins that said that. Sark said something else that was in my book. And I, thank you. <laughs> pregnancy brain. I, no, I get it. But yeah, I was, I was in a situation where, and I was actually in the middle of writing the book and my dad got very sick and very sick terminal. And I was given the option to either stay in North Carolina. I did go out there initially and saw how sick he was. And it was, it was shocking because I didn't realize that he was that sick. And then I, I was, I was there for like four or five days and it was awful and hard. And I saw things that no adult child should see from their parent, And it was just excruciating. So I, then I flew home and then the hospice called cause I had told them, I said, call me when you think it's time. And I knew it would be fairly soon. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it would be just five days later. So they said, you should probably come back out. And it, they said, if you want to be here when he dies, you know, now's the time. And so I had that decision to make. And my brother um, was saying he's basically gone because he wasn't even really lucid at that point. You know, he didn't, couldn't really talk. And, and you know, my brother was pretty much trying to convince me and tell me, giving me permission to, that I didn't have to go 
that he, dad was okay. He's like, you've already said goodbye to him. You know, have you said everything that you wanted to say to him? And I said, yes. And he, and he, my brother was trying to ease my pain because I was sobbing on the phone with him. Yeah. You know, what should I do? And my, and, um, and then I told my husband, I said, I think I'm going to stay home. I think, I think it's going to be okay. And my husband was like, <laughs> he was surprised. He's like, Andrea, you have to go. Like, and, and he wasn't saying that about him. He was saying like, you're going to regret this if you don't go. Like it was strange of me to not go. So I did, I got on a plane and I had emailed my friend, Martha Jo Adkins, and she's actually a specialist in grief and dying. And she wrote a book called uh, signposts of the dying, which was very helpful to me. And I, I told her, you know, I'm, I'm going and I, I need to admit to you, I, there's a part of me that, that doesn't want to go. Mm-hmm. And she basically said, you running towards that and that pain and those feelings, that is big love. And it wasn't even totally about my dad. It was a lot about me too, because I lived my whole life, Megan, (laughs) running away from my pain, running away, not even just running away from my problems, but running away from the pain and the risk and the uncertainty. And just, if I couldn't control it, I didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. And this was the ultimate, this was the ultimate test. I've never lost anyone in my life. So I was trying to engineer it. Like if it's going to happen, have it happen on the other coast, have it happen 3000 miles away where I can be in my grief over here. And I realized like that is, that is chicken shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's going to hurt no matter what. And I needed to walk towards it. And it was the most excruciating thing I've ever dealt with. And at the same time, you know, right after he died, I was texting my husband that night and, and he, and he just kind of asked like, how are you? How was it? And I said, it was, I said, it was, it was excruciating and it was beautiful. And of course he didn't understand and it didn't, it was okay that my husband didn't understand, but that's what it was. And I think that's how so many of those big life moments are. It's like when you're really willing to hold the container for yourself to feel Mm -hmm. that pain we feel the level of pain we do because it's deeply attached to the amount we love. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't love big, then it's not going to hurt big. And I think being able to hold the container for both of those things for yourself, it teaches you how, how big of a capacity you have Mm -hmm. to hold two very opposing things and to truly show up for yourself. And it's brave as hell. Yeah. It was, I mean, if you asked me in that moment, if I thought it was brave, I would have been like, (laughs) (laughs) it just is so, I wrote a lot about it in the weeks that followed, you know, and then I had to go home and finish my self-help book. I was like, are you kidding me? I asked for a six month extension. They gave me three weeks. Um, It was not easy. You know, I I got home and then, you know, my kids went back to school and my husband went back to work and I'm like sitting in my dining room, like listening to the clock check. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way I can work. So I wrote, I wrote a lot of poetry about my dad and about grief and about pain and about the relationship he and I had both my relationship with him as a child and then as an adult. And it's really, it's, it's grief. Yes. Grief. It really cracked me open because there is no other, there's nothing else like it. And it really, you are, I think that the universe asks a lot of you. And I think that you learn a lot about yourself in grief, you know, what you, what you, and it's not what you can and can't tolerate because we can all tolerate so much. It's what we will and won't tolerate. You know, the old me would have just drowned myself in wine. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I thought about it, you know, I had six years of sobriety and there were moments where I was like, Oh God, a glass of wine 
you know, read a bottle of wine. We'll just mm-hmm. make all this go away. And, and we don't like to feel grief. Grief is probably one of the toughest emotions, but it's also <laughs> such a damn spiritual process. Like it's a totally. spiritual experience. And the thing that I've actually come to know about grief is for me, it's, it's an act of love. Yeah. To really honor the feelings that I'm having, um, the despair, the longing, because sorrow. you know, I kept saying yeah. the word sorrow. Yeah. Because when you lose someone you love, like the only person who can fix it and heal that is the person that's gone. Right. And so you're left with this like, yeah, empty, empty place at the table. And you're like, how do I, and it's not about filling it. Right. And that's like one of the hardest things is to let there be a hole and let it be okay. And to honor that hole and what it was, you know? Yeah, for sure. So you come home And it's not just getting back into book writing and work and deadlines and very real stuff, but it's also stepping back into mom, Andrea, wife, Andrea, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're having to process some of the deepest grief in front of your kids. And you're like, are you, are you questioning like what's safe to to show in front of them? What's not, what do I need to go and do in private? Like, how did you manage that? Well, it's interesting. And I want to tell you a quick story about what was modeled for me growing up. Cause I think that this is a common story. So I grew up in a family with parents that loved the shit out of me and um, I have really no complaints. You know, I'm, I'm blessed enough. I, I didn't experience any kind of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. I had none of that. And, but my parents didn't know how to express feelings in front of me. I don't think that they knew how to express feelings to each other. And that was probably the demise of their marriage after 24 years. And uh, my mom's brother died when I was probably in elementary school maybe third, fourth grade. And I came home from school one day and it was odd because my dad was home too. And he said, your uncle Gus died. It was sudden. My uncle was not that old. And um, let's just leave your mom alone. And my mom spent three days in her bedroom and it was dark. And I found out later she had been prescribed Valium, which my mom didn't drink or anything like that. And so I remember I'd be playing in my room and I'd, I'd look over and she'd be like shuffling down the hallway and her robe and her slippers mm. in the middle of the day. And it was very strange. I was scared. I was a child and I was like, what is going on? You know, no one talked to me about it. Yeah. And now my children are that age. And, and I, I, Nobody gave me the benefit of the doubt. Like I could have, I was, I was old enough and capable and resilient enough to have that conversation. Would it have been a tough conversation? Absolutely. Would it have been awkward? And was it painful to see my mother cry? Yes. But nobody talked to me about it. And I was like, what is going on? Yeah. (laughs) And then another time, not long after that, a family friend of ours committed suicide Mm -hmm. and it was my dad's best friend's wife. And he came home and he and I remember I had come out of my room and he was standing down the hallway with my mom and he, I, would, I saw them just at the moment where he told her and he told my, I don't think that I was meant to hear this conversation. He told my mom how she, she had shot herself in the, in the head. And, um, my dad broke down as he was telling my mom this and I mm-hmm. ran back in my room and it was very much like, um, it was like, I saw something I was not supposed to see. So I got the message very early on that we don't talk about the hard things. Mm -hmm. Um, If it so rarely does happen with my parents, that is a very adult thing to do. I was very confused by my emotions. I was very confused to see my parents cry, which so very rarely happened. So when it did and nobody talked to me about it, I was like, what is this? So our family didn't have the tools. uh, And this is absolutely not to blame and shame my parents. They didn't, I mean, 
personal development was for hippies back then. Like, let's right? be honest. Like, I know. I know. I talked <laughs> to my mom about this too. She's like, you're in such a better place than I was yeah. raising kids. Like you talk about feelings and stuff. They didn't, they didn't even, I don't even think that they knew it was an option, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, so totally. it just wasn't a thing. And they did the best they could and they did do a great job, but, but I, I was, this is what I was modeled. And so now to circle back to your question, I know that this is an easy thing, um, but I know that my children are perfectly capable and resilient human beings, although they're little human beings, but I cry in front of them. And I know that they don't, you know, it's not, they'd rather not see me cry, but I'm also able to talk to them about it and talk to them about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And they saw me cry about my dad. They saw me in bed with a bunch of tissues around me and crying and they would ask me questions and my daughter is the younger one. And she's, um, she had just turned eight when it happened. And she would ask me, you know, what most people would deem as like totally inappropriate, you know, questions, but she's just genuinely curious. And I would answer all of her questions. And, um, and then she was curious about when we were going to die and then she would cry. And, and I think this is life, you guys, like, this is what happens. We all die. Mm-hmm. And my daughter's fine. And my, both of them are fine. And they kind of processed it a little bit differently. My son's very much, you've met him. He's very <laughs> analytical and, and um, more conceptual. And my daughter's uh, can, um, she can, I think, identify her feelings a little bit more. And, but, and I talk about that in the book, you know, we need to raise our children to be okay with feelings. Like one thing I tell my kids that I was not told this, I tell them, you're allowed to feel whatever you feel. You're allowed to be angry with me but you are responsible for your behavior. What, you, what I will not accept is you being nasty to me. I will not accept you slamming your door over and over again. Yeah. You can go in your room and cry and be pissed off at me, but you're responsible for how you treat me. Mm-hmm. And that I have boundaries around. So they know, they, they know, and they can repeat it back to me. Like we can feel whatever we feel. I, I never make my children wrong for feeling how they feel. Yeah. I mean, I was watching you process some of this on social um, like after your dad died and the conversations that you're having with your kids. And I was like, wow, like so much willingness to really go there and not need to have all the answers. And I think that's the thing that stops a lot of us from, from being so vulnerable. It's cause like, well, they're going to have all these questions and I don't know how to answer them. <laughs> well, yeah. nobody knows how, nobody has all the answers, right? <laughs> I just say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But what a permission that is to model that for your kids that they don't need to have all the answers either. Mm-hmm. You know, they can exactly. be in a difficult space of the unknown and, and you're safe. Yeah. I remember um, something happened with my son. He was embarrassed at school about something. I think he, he said something or answered a question wrong and some kids laughed in his classroom and he was, he got into the car and was upset and crying and, and he told me the story and I said, of course my thoughts were, who are those kids? I'm gonna- <laughs> But um, I said, I know, I know exactly how that feels. Mm-hmm. I know exactly how that feels. That's happened to me before. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's really, there was really nothing I could have done to make him feel better. Like I could have said like, and I do sometimes like, we believe in you. We love you. We know you're not stupid. And I do say those things. And I also say, gosh, I know how that feels like to be embarrassed in class and feel stupid. Well, let's just bring this full circle for a second, because in your book, you have a chapter about isolating and shutting down. And what was modeled for so many of us is that when you're feeling deeply, you need to go and and handle that by yourself until you have things under control and then you can come back to the world. Right. And instead you're showing your kids, like we can feel together. We can Mm -hmm. feel deep stuff, hard stuff together. You don't have to do it alone. Yeah. 
And I have no idea how that's going to change the landscape of our emotional intelligence moving forward, but I have a feeling it's going to be a really positive thing to know that we can feel scared or hurt or um, disappointed or betrayed or whatever that is. And somebody can come and feel that with us. We don't have yeah. to just do it on our own, you know? Yeah. And I think that I, I wanted to, I want people to, to make it clear to people that like, this is not always how I've been. Like I, was not a great friend in my 20s. And I think if I was a parent in my 20s, it would have looked very different because I couldn't even deal with my own feelings. I couldn't bear my own struggle and pain. So I sure as hell couldn't bear yours. Oh, yeah. So don't bring me your stuff. Like if you bring me your stuff, I'm going to strategize with you how to make you feel better. <laughs> or we're going to go out yes. drinking tonight <laughs> because I couldn't bear it. And it's really interesting is I wrote a poem after my dad died. And... um even though I have done so much work on myself, my parents are still the hardest. It's my, still my kryptonite. You know, I can be, have these really healthy feeling conversations with my children and my husband and my best friends and, you know, my colleagues and you. And, but when it comes to my parents, like, oh my God, <laughs> that's my hardest. And when my dad died, I, um, there were so many conversations that we never had. There were so many questions that I had for him that I was curious about that I didn't ask because I know my dad had, he struggled with anxiety and depression his whole life. Mm -hmm. And I know that there was some, some stuff that from his family of origin that he carried with him. My dad is, is so much like me. The apple did not fall far. It's a very <laughs> highly sensitive man. And I think as a man, it's, even more taboo to be quote unquote that way. And, uh, he, I think that, you know, I wrote this poem and I was saying in the, in the poem, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was something to the effect of, I, I couldn't, I don't, even if you were standing in front of me now and you were alive, I don't think I could ask you these questions because I can't, can't bear your primal scream. Mm. And I think that, um, no matter how old we get, I think that the relationship we have with our parents is still can be complicated and I know for me, it was based on how it grew up. I think you can heal a ton, but to me, that is the ultimate bravery. Like if you can have a hard conversation with your parents, <laughs> you, in my book, like you were in a medal because people say like, oh, Andrea, you're so brave. And I'm like, yeah, I go and tell my story like on my podcast and in books. Like to me, bravery is, is having hard conversations and telling the truth to the people you care about the most. Because mm -hmm. I care about their opinion the most out of anyone. And that, like, these are the people that can, can truly break your heart. It's so, that so to me is crazy that you mentioned that because I just literally did an episode called The Bullseye of Bravery mm -hmm. and how we have these different circles of safety around yeah. us and how you would think that you would be bravest of the people who are closest to you, but that's not usually how it works. We actually go to one layer out where it's a little bit more comfortable because we don't have as much to lose. There's no emotional attachment. Exactly. So mm -hmm. when we're having those tough conversations with the people who are highly invested in who we are or who we become, it is sometimes excruciatingly scary to yeah. like have a really truthful conversation. And I've been, you know, practicing this stuff with my parents this year because I've been really diving deep into like the stories that are embedded in like religious upbringing that mm -hmm. have informed who I think oh, I need to be as a woman. <laughs> and me and my parents are very different in regards to religion and politics, which are the two most anxiety inducing topics. Yeah. Like I get the pushback from them all the time. Like you don't need to talk about this stuff because it's so polarizing. I'm like, but there's so much here. There's so 
much in religion and politics. Yes. I've same, same parent, you know, yeah. My parents, both my parents grew up Catholic and I grew up mm-hmm. Lutheran, which is basically Catholic light. Yes. Um, <laughs> Episcopalian is the same. <laughs> so yeah. I got you. <laughs> the dogma holds on. Yes. We can do a whole nother podcast episode. About and I that. think that we should, but there's way too much in your book that I really want to focus on. So thank you so much for sharing all of the story of just being in being present with so much hard stuff, because that's like losing a parent is, that's one of the biggest life transitions we go through, you know? Yeah. So I just appreciate you showing up so fully in that. So I really want to start diving into this next chapter of comparison because you, you say something so brilliant. You say, I'll never tell you to stop comparing yourself to others because it's not about stopping it. It's about learning to manage it. Mm-hmm. And you go on to talk about how we actually stop or learning to manage it better. And part of it is actually owning your greatness. Yeah. And I want to talk about why that is so freaking hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Again, do you have an hour? I think, yeah. I, 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 I can't stand the advice that, that is just black and white, you know, stop comparing yourself to others. I, I geek out on brain science, although I don't know the exact brain science on this. I think that there is something biological about us that does it as a matter of uh, survival. Like we mm-hmm. size other people up, like, you know, like, and, and our old brains do this. When we meet someone, we like, are you good? Are you bad? Are you someone I might want to mate with? Do you have food? You know, like these are like basic <laughs> survival things and, and how it's kind of gone awry is social media and, and, and where it ends up really screwing up our lives is when we make up stories about ourselves based on other people. That's where it kind of messes us up. But on owning your greatness, I think that it really is too about, you know, keeping your eyes on your own paper. And when we do keep our eyes on our own paper, that makes you really uncomfortable. It becomes easier to compare yourself to someone else. And it's like, where am I not measuring up? Oh, I can tell you all about how I'm not measuring up. But if you ask me about my accomplishments, I'm going to opt out of that exercise because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's one of the problems is culturally stereotypes. You know, we are not as women, we are not necessarily applauded for being, uh, it makes me think of, I did a podcast episode on Chacha de Gregorio from Greece. In a conversation about the movie and she was asking me who when I was gets Chacha. And she's like, really? Nobody likes Chacha. And I'm like, I love her. Like, seriously, this woman, like, if you think about it, she meets these people and she tells them she's the best dancer at St. Bernadette's and like, they just met her. When she wins the dance contest, the, she snatches the trophy out of the teacher's hand and is like waving it around. Like no one is more confident and owns their greatness more than Chacha de Gregorio. So when, like, I, she's like me. If I could just take a, a little bit of the greatness that she owns, you know, we'd all be in a different position. But, but again, like it makes us very uncomfortable to even just list our accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boastful or conceited and like, who do you think you are? And that's what we're thinking. And, um, oh man, it's a, it's a mind fuck. Well, know? well, I know. <clears throat> and I love that we can talk about this because you're like, you're totally into Brene's work just like I am. Yeah. And one of the things that's coming up in a group program that I'm running right now is this concept, like this fear around being successful the fear around owning your truth and being your wildest expression of self, hence the wild part of wild and holy. Mm-hmm. And 
what's really interesting to me is that this holy part, I used to think it was about being one with God or being one with the divine of being one with your power. And what I'm starting to realize, there's this whole other layer of it's about being one with each other. It's about belonging. And what comes up is that there's such this fear that if we own all of who we are and we stand in our power, we stand and look how great I am. Look at these achievements. That, and look how proud I am of accomplishing uh-huh. them, right? That other people aren't going to like us. Right. It's going to threaten our belonging. Well, like name a role model for me, like in a movie or like in, in the media, successful women who own their power are not portrayed nicely. No, (laughs) no, they're not. As far as a character, they are usually bitchy, alone, single. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They look constipated. Like it's just what we have been handed from a young age is not something we typically aspire to be. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is shifting and I'm so glad that that is shifting, but it's a stereotype that we have been handed from the patriarchy really. And, and I, for one, am, am determined to change it. I, I want to be a different role model for my daughter and for my son, but I just, I'm so, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of seeing it. Yes, I am too. And I think it's often portrayed as like a greater than thou when right. we're actually owning like our awesomeness mm-hmm. and what that, and so we're also taught this story of like, oh, well, she's just being hard. She's not being vulnerable. She's keeping people at a distance because she is saying, look how great I am. When there's space for us to be both. Yeah. For us to own our, our ambition and to own our gifts and to own what we're bringing to the table while also being connected, deeply connected yeah. to others. And I'll be totally honest because I don't know how to be any other way, but that is, that is, those have been some hard lessons for me. And really, you know, I have, I have made decisions and done things in order to fly a little bit under the radar. I'll give you an example. When my first book came out, I did one book event because I was terrified that people would actually show up to Mm -hmm. these other ones, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. like, then what, then what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to show up for these people. And, you know, I know for a lot of uh, of your listeners too, probably in mine, we're very dichotomous thinkers. It's all or nothing. So it's like, and I also mm-hmm. had this fear, either nobody would show up or everybody would show up. I was equally right. afraid of both. Yes. Like there wasn't any in between like, Oh, what if like 10 or 15 people show up and, and like, that would be great. And, but no, I had this fear. And so I engineered that whole thing to make it comfortable for me. And I had my one book event in San Diego, which is where I'm from. I knew 98% of the people that would be there would be people I know. They would be either friends or family or people I went to high school with, which it was. Mm -hmm. It was easy. So this time I was like, I am not doing it that way. I'm terrified. (laughs) I'm going to five cities. There might be a case where there's only like five people that show up and that is going to have to be okay. And I'm going to have to bring my tools because I am scared, Megan. Like, I'll be honest. But you bring up, and you know, I love that we we're talking about this because something I'm diving into, you know, people always are like wild and holy. There's something really powerful about that. And, and <laughs> I teach it because I need to learn it too. Right. Of like not putting myself in those either or scenarios. It can be both. And like, you can be scared as shit of all of these amazing magical people that are going to show up to your book events and do it anyway. Right. Yeah. And be really awkward and like, uh, be like, I'm going to break out into hives. 
<laughs> and learn a lot during the process. Exactly. And hug people and take awkward selfies. And, and that's like how it is. And <laughs> I think, yeah. But there's, I, there's I, that vulnerability there around the success, just as much as there is the vulnerability around the insecurity. And mm-hmm. I think like learning how to lean into that vulnerability, that's the solution. If we yeah. don't learn how to lean into the vulnerability, we try and, and avoid everything that makes us uncomfortable, right? But we're also not stepping forward into anything better either because we're just trying to stay in what feels okay and safe. And I love this. There's this perfect paragraph where you talk about um, like dirty dancing with success. You say, why do we keep on self-sabotaging ourselves by not showing up to our fullest? And you say, we do, we actually do the things to reach our goal. Oh, sorry. Because to actually do the things to reach our goals means we are dirty dancing with vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It might not work out. We yeah. might not reach the goal. We might fail. Breakups might happen. People might say things about us that we don't like. We might succeed and people will have things to say about that or it will make them uncomfortable. There are no guarantees. And this is where it gets so good. If I know my people, you all love guaranteed outcomes. We're addicted to certainty. Mm-hmm. But to let go and trust ourselves in the universe is so fucking scary that we just can't and don't do it. Yeah. Oh. I think the thing, yeah, the thing that really struck me in, in a lot of my work is like so many people talk about the fear of failure. And yes, that's valid. And that happens. But I have a large part of my audience that is also, it's not an or, <laughs> mm-hmm. also afraid of success, myself yes. included. Because I got to a point where I think that this is typical. I got to a point where I had learned to manage my inner critic. I had worked on my worthiness. I had worked on having emotional agility. And I had you know, bypassed that voice that says, you shouldn't do that. And then we get to the voice that says, well, who do you think you are? And when we have more and more success, that's where that voice comes in. And I don't be too much, right? Don't be too much. Don't. And I like totally make up stories that I'm making people feel uncomfortable. My coaches and friends call me out all the time on it. And they're like, who, who has ever said to you (laughs) that you make them uncomfortable with your success? You know, I have had like kind of passive aggressive comments where people have said, oh, can you, can you not show up in full hair and makeup? (laughs) Are you making me look bad? Like Mm. I've, I, yeah. And I'm like, (laughs) but no, what I really do is like, oh, well, then I should not shine so bright. Sorry, mm. sorry, sorry mm. if I'm making you uncomfortable. But yeah, the fear, there was something else I was going to say about the fear of success. And, and now I forget what it was. It might come back to me. Well, I think the, the trusting yourself is, is a big part of all of this. Mm-hmm. And trusting ourselves, not only that we'll show up, but that we'll be okay if people don't like what we have. That people, if, if we are too much for somebody, which I don't really believe is like, what's really going on here. You're never too much for somebody. It's just Mm -hmm. somebody's threatened by what you're presenting. It's their stuff, not yours. their stuff, yeah. And we try and dim ourselves down to fit into these little boxes so we don't end up in that situation. But by doing so, we're not challenging anybody else either. And we're especially letting ourselves down. Yes, and what this just came up for me when you were saying that, and I think about myself, anytime another woman has made me feel uncomfortable in her success, like, you know, if I've been jealous or like, oh, you know, like she's not even that smart, you know, like when she really is like, that is so my shit. That is all about me and feeling insecure that I am not playing a bigger game, that I am not going after what I know in my heart. I am truly capable of doing what I, I know that I was actually meant to do and not actually play small. That is so about me. So yeah. I, sh- you know, I should know that when other, when I'm making up that other people are uncomfortable, it's, it's just not real. It's, all made up. 
No, it so is. And I think one of the tools that you provide in the book, which is what I love about like starting to own your greatness and start starting to toe that line of success and being willing to step over it and like step into who you're here to be. You talk about the way that we speak about ourselves in Mm -hmm. front of others is not for their benefit. It's for our own. Yeah. And that was such a big reframe reading the book. I was like, oh, yes, yes. That is so affirmative for me. Mm-hmm. How I speak about myself is it's a teaching moment. Yeah, it is. And I think that, and this sort of overlaps with imposter complex a little bit too, which is a whole nother chapter, but how often do we poo-poo our successes or give oh, yeah. a lot of people way too much credit, mm-hmm. other people too much credit or, or say things like, well, anybody can do that. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, I say that about writing books, you know, when people are really congratulatory or excited for me and I'm like, I stop saying it out loud, but sometimes this thought still comes up. Like, it's just self-help. Like anybody could do that. You know, it's like, actually, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> really smart. You know, it's like, I've worked my ass off. I've worked my mother loving ass off for this. And mm-hmm. it's, it's statements like that. The things that we say out loud, it is, it can be profound. I mean, think about how anybody listening who has gotten together with a bunch of women has been in a situation where you commiserate about whose thighs are the biggest. Oh, yeah. you know, it's how we bond. Being self-deprecating and talking negatively about ourselves and our bodies is sadly a way that we connect with other women. Mm-hmm. And I notice this a lot now. I used to not notice it. I used to just participate in it. But now I am like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> We're not going to do this anymore. And I, have, I think it's such a great idea. I don't do this. I have a friend that does this where she has a group of like five friends and they group text each other every morning or once a week or something like that where they, and sometimes it'll be like a nude selfie. Like they'll, they'll, they'll text each other that and like everybody like totally cheers her on. She's like, yes, woman, <laughs> we look amazing. And they just like validate the shit out of each other. Oh, and then I think that's so powerful. And what if, what if we did that, you know, but we're so, oh, we, we get so caught up and just like wrung out over it. And I want that to change. Well, I think it kind of starts to tap dance on this other thing too, of taking up space in the world. Yeah. And for most of us, we've been taught to like shrink and to not draw too much attention to ourselves. And <laughs> you want to talk about the religious piece of that. That's a whole other conversation. Right. But I do think that learning to like own your greatness and to step into your success and be all that you are is learning to take up space and get comfortable with the space you're taking up. Yeah. And those, again, are some hard lessons. And I think mm-hmm. that when you do that, when you start to own your space and, and take up space and, and what that might look like from a practical sense is speaking out about things and setting boundaries and saying no and being assertive, that will, I guarantee you, will make some people uncomfortable. Yeah. People tend to not appreciate. I remember I had a, I had a best friend for a long, long time and she was personality was a little bit different than mine. She was more passive and she tended to, she tended to attract father figure type of boyfriends. Mm -hmm. I would say 90% of her boyfriends did not like me, her best Mm -hmm. friend, because (laughs) I told them what I thought. (laughs) There are men out there that do not like assertive women. Mm-hmm. Who women who step into their masculinity, it scares them. They don't know what to do with it. They, they see it as a threat mm-hmm. and you're going to encounter those people and they're going to yeah. knock you down. It's happened to me and you are going to, that's when you're going to need to lean on your tribe and your people. And yes, you might cry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing that I've noticed, and this is 
still, like everyone listening, like, please know this is something that I'm very much still working on and it still scares the shit out of me to do Likewise. it and to practice it. <clears throat> but what I have noticed is that the more I'm willing to be in that uncomfortable space, the deeper belonging I'm creating like within myself. And the more that starts to strengthen, it's like, I'm not as afraid of taking up space and not belonging with other people because it's more important to belong with me first. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's been a really cool thing to remind myself of, of when I'm scared of like, you know, what if somebody doesn't like me if I have to draw a hard boundary or what if I show up and I'm proud of something? And everybody's like, oh, look, she must think she's so great. And it's like, I'm allowed to be proud of myself and to start owning my accomplishments and change the relationship I'm having with that. That's creating deeper integrity and belonging within me. Yeah. And that's something I'm just not willing to like <laughs> abandon and keep on abandoning, you know, because it's just so important. Yeah. I think so many listeners can probably think of stories where when you were saying that, I just, it popped into my head out of, out of seemingly nowhere. When I was, it's so young, you know, like riding bikes on the street with my friends, there was, there was one girl and we were talking about another girl, you know, cause that happens sometimes. And she <laughs> said, Oh, she thinks she's so hot. And I remember thinking like, Oh, like, I hope nobody thinks that about me. Right. I was probably like eight. <laughs> no, it's so <laughs> true. It's profound to connect the dots of like, where did this come from? Again, religious background, girls talking about other girls, thinking that they're hot and, you know, you don't want to be that girl. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and then a, a stereotypes too, like in high school, if a, if, a, if a girl had confidence and, and did whatever she wanted, she was labeled yeah. as, I, I don't even need to say like what she was We now know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and I'm glad that you brought that up because these are some hard habits to break, but I think it can be really powerful to ask yourself really important questions about it. You know, where did that come from? What do I make it mean? What do I make it mean if I fully step into my greatness? Mm -hmm. um, what am I afraid of? Because at the end of the day, if you go seven layers deep, a lot of us are afraid of death. We are afraid, like you were saying, of not belonging, yeah. not being pushed at. No, those are some biological fears that we all have. Totally. Small. And you, you bring up, and it's like a little small section in the book, um, where we talk, where you were talking about the importance of female friendships and having a group of women who will allow you to shine. Oh, like oh, how important that is <laughs> because it's been so life changing to be able to practice these tools in a safe container where you have people who are building you up and supporting you and cheerleading you of like, yes, own that. Yes, queen, go ahead. You know, mm -hmm. instead of being in a very toxic environment where people feel threatened and are, you know, it's just not good. So I think being mindful of who you're keeping around you who you're listening to, who, who's cheerleading for you is a really important piece because bravery doesn't happen in silos. It happens in circles. So making sure you have a strong circle around you is a big piece, which sure. actually brings me to the other chapter I want to dive into, which is the staying strong chapter. Oh God. And <laughs> if there's anything that creates a silo, <laughs> it is I can't be vulnerable. I can't share my feelings. I can't ask for what I need. I have to do this all on my own. And this staying strong complex is, oh my God, it's keeping us stuck and isolated and scared. And anytime I'm alone and scared, like that is full reign for those voices of not enough to just tap dance all over me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's terrible. Pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I call it being strong, the elusive tough exterior. And it's, it's funny. So let me just read <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm going to tell you 
how it was edited because it was, it was a lot, it was a little <laughs> bit different. So um, stay strong, they say, although it is meant as a pep talk, the command stay strong deserves a special place in hell, in my opinion. In fact, <laughs> if being strong were a house, I'd like to throw a brick through its front window and set it on fire. So the original that I, in the manuscript, I, what it said, that last part, it said, I'd like to throw a brick through its front window and set the motherfucker on fire. Right. Um, and I was <laughs> Burn it down. very passionate about this topic. And that this topic was born from, I always knew it kind of existed and was always kind of irritated with it. But there was a woman on Facebook. I had, I had, I don't even, I think it might've been a friend of a friend even. And she was in a car accident where she was driving and it was, she was with like three or four, she had three or four kids and one of her children died. Oh my and it was awful. And she wasn't drunk or but at any rate, she, it was just a bad accident. And I'm reading all the comments on Facebook and the majority of them were stay strong, be strong. And I'm like, why? Because of the opposite, to fall apart, her child just died. Yeah. To fall apart means what? It means to be human. And I think that, you know, and I've told people just to be strong, but we are uncomfortable with people not being strong. You know, anything else than that is looked at as like the weak gazelle that's going to get eaten by the tigers. Like you yeah. can't be with it. <laughs> and I, I personally, you know, I, I went through a really hard time about 11 years ago and people would say to me things like, you're so strong. I don't know how I would have survived that if I was in your shoes. And I took that as a badge of honor. I took that as praise. Like, yeah. okay, this is how I should be. And it became my identity, but really I was falling apart. Like I was a mess. I was, mm -hmm. I hate to use this word, but I really think it described, I was destroyed during that time. I was, you know, burned the whole thing down. And I, the point of that chapter is I would like to turn the definition of being strong on its head and being strong can be you falling apart when life has fallen apart. You're, you're like being in pain and actually expressing it to someone else, moving through your feelings instead of avoiding them is actually personally, the, the strongest thing I've ever had to do. Wow. It's yes. easy to avoid pain. Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yes. But I think the reason that we get, we tell people to be strong is because if they are vulnerable, if they're emotional, it calls on our presence to be in that with them. Yeah. And that's something that it's like, well, I don't want to have to do that. And we're all like, oh shit, now I got to feel, I don't want to do that. So we're like, just stay strong. So I don't have to deal with my stuff in here. Stay strong over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because it's interesting. I, my second retreat, I led this year. <clears throat> I had just, I came into it with just a lot of emotion and I'd been holding space for a lot. I had been stressed. It was, it was a much harder process to bring, to call in the women that I knew who were supposed to be there. And I just been outputting energy, outputting energy. And I just felt so, you know, tapped. And I, one of my girlfriends came in to teach Koya that morning. And I just I mean, the tears were like, you know, cheek, they're getting ready to come out the eye sockets. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I can't do this. I'm leading this. I'm facilitating this. Yeah. I'm holding space here. Like, I can't fall apart right now. I have to keep it all together and bless my friend. She said, why don't you just do both? Mm. And I'm like, like the thought had never occurred to me <laughs> that I could is. literally keep it together and <laughs> fall apart all at the same time. And I gave myself the permission to be emotional and to cry and to also still lead these women and facilitate and hold the container that I could do both. Yeah. And it changed everything for me when it came to this whole be strong thing, like being strong and falling apart, you can do it at the same time. They yeah. don't have to be this either or. 
pressure that we put on ourselves. For sure. Oh, the pressure, yes. like it is crazy what we do to ourselves, isn't it? Well, it's literal pressure, you know, in your body when you hold in feelings like that. And, and this is a theme I talk about in that chapter and in the numbing chapter about feeling your feelings. And, yeah. you know, take it from me, like I was somebody who had mastered shoving it down. You know, I struggled mm-hmm. with an eating disorder and love addiction and alcoholism and I'm sober and, and that whole lesson of learning how to feel my feelings was one of the hardest ones I've ever had. And the, the perspective that I like to, to say is, you know, what if you looked at it as your body, just knowing what to do? I mean, you've given birth before Megan, like, you know, that if you try to control it and I'm like, no baby, like you're not coming out, your body's like got other plans. <laughs> yeah. Same thing with like sneezing or sweating or farting even, you know, it's like your body is trying to expel <laughs> yes. what it needs to do to heal and to get back to a place of homeostasis and yes. to get on with life. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with our emotions, whether yes. it's joy or grief or anger or, or sadness and tears. I truly believe that it is our body's way of just expelling what it needs to expel. And the, 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 with more, the more agile we can do that and the, the more accepting we are of that, the faster we get on the other side. That yeah. was like, like mind-blowing to me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I had to experience it. I, you, I thought I wasn't going to survive. You have to experience it to know that you can hold that container. Cause a lot of like learning to feel your feelings is, is container holding for yourself and container building and know that those emotions aren't going to overwhelm you. Cause that was my fear. Yeah. Like back when, during drugs and alcohol and, and sex days, it was like, I can't feel this because I'll drown in it. If I start so crying, I, I'll never stop. I would never even let it in an inch because there would be no end in sight. Like that's how mm-hmm. overwhelming that emotion felt. And then when I started playing with it and trusting myself, yeah, that's like, what it is. oh wow, like I can feel this and then I can kind of step out of it for a while and then I can come back, like I can dance with it. I yeah. am the one that's the vessel holding this, not the emotion. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you, but like I was always a little bit, especially in the first t- time I was really starting to feel my feelings with more ease. I was, I would always be a little bit surprised. Like when I would stop crying and feel so much better, I was like, Oh, Oh yeah. (laughs) What just happened? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or I remember like when I was doing some of my inner child work, when I was starting to like really dive into the concepts of enoughness, uh, the coach I was working with at the time, like I kept on trying to dodge the, like he would see the emotion coming up and then I would start like talking about something else. And he'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what was that? What was that? And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I'm, I'm so good at pretending. And he would say, let yourself feel it. And the minute I did, it's like these tears would come and it's like, I couldn't, I, I couldn't stop it, but then it stopped on its own. Like if you release control, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Surrender. <laughs> Got a tattoo on my arm. Did you know that everything <laughs> works its way out? Like literally it always does. Yeah. It's Isn't so that phenomenal. Amazing how that happens. No, really our bodies is. are the smartest part of ourselves. And I, yeah. yeah, you said the word surrender. I literally got it tattooed on my arm two months after my dad died because to me, grief was the ultimate surrender. Like, okay, mm. body, you just know what to do. I trust you. I think that you know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm willing to go out on a limb here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh my gosh. You guys, you have got to go and get this book. It is phenomenal. Like we barely even scratched the surface today. Today. Andrea, thank you so much for just for reaching out and saying, can I come talk about my book? Like, hell yes. Uh, oh, it's amazing. So I'm so happy for you. Like, congratulations. This is book number two. It is. You wrote it in during some deep emotional stress. <laughs> and 
I'm sure that there's so many lessons in this for, for you that's going to contribute to your next book. And I can't wait to read that one too. Oh, so thank you, honey. thanks for being you and thanks for being a friend. And I'm just excited to support you on this book launch. Thank you so much. I, I know we could have talked for hours and I'm, I'm always, I'm always loving an excuse to talk to you. <laughs> I know me too. <laughs> We're going to have another dinner date soon when I'm back yes. on the East coast. Yay! All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in and all the links to support Andrea and her book launch and to get your hands on how to stop feeling like shit will be in the show notes. So definitely go and check those out and I'll see you again soon.